Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 9 today, doing the whole chapter, starting in verse 1, going through verse 18, because today we're finishing up our series in the book of Proverbs. So if you've been with us for the past several months, we've been walking through some selected Proverbs to learn about biblical wisdom. And we've been talking about how we're not born with biblical wisdom. This is not innate to us, but rather the Bible's going to encourage us to seek wisdom in the Scriptures, seek wisdom by fearing God, these kind of things. And we've been talking about that in the book of Proverbs. Now, Next week, in addition to beginning our theological equipping class again, we're going to be jumping into the book of Romans, all right? That's one of my favorite books in the Bible. That's going to be a very different kind of series than what we've had here in Proverbs, but we encourage you to come to that. I think that will be a ton of fun. Now, today, as we look through Proverbs 9, Proverbs 9 is interesting because in a sense, it's a summary of the entire book of Proverbs, okay? If you didn't have any other Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, but you had Proverbs 9, you'd still have a majority of what the book of Proverbs is trying to teach you about seeking biblical wisdom and avoiding folly. And so this text is going to talk about two different ladies, all right? One is called Lady Wisdom, and the other one in Old Testament scholarly literature is called Dame, that's D-A-M-E, Dame Folly, Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly, and they are going to call for the attention of us all, okay? Now, here's something you need to know. These women don't actually exist, okay? These are symbols. You're not going to be at Walmart and be like, you know who I ran into today? Lady Wisdom. That's not going to happen. It's like Lady Liberty or Lady Justice. They're symbols, Lady Liberty is not an actual person. You wouldn't ask questions like, what is Lady Liberty's favorite color? They're symbols for freedom and for justice. In the same way, these women don't actually exist here in Proverbs 9. They're symbols. Wisdom is personified as a woman, and folly is personified as a, wo- uh, as a woman, and they both call for the attention of the simple. Okay? Those are, by the way, the three main characters in this text. There's a few others, but Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly, or Dame Folly, and the simple and the simple. Those are the three main characters. Now, to start us off, I want to uh, give you a little example of what's going on in this text. On staff here at Parkway, there are four of us. There's Tim, Carl, Jeff, and I, and we agree on just about everything. We agree on theology. We agree on philosophy of ministry. We agree on our hopes for Parkway. We agree on so many things, but the one thing that we cannot agree on ever is where to eat lunch, okay? So we want to go out as a staff during the week and get lunch, but we probably spend 30 hours a week just debating where to go to lunch, all right? This is a big part of our day is trying to figure out where to go to lunch, and here's why. We all have different tastes. Some of us have more refined tastes. Some of us uh, want junk food, and Jeff is kind of like Lady Wisdom. Jeff says, let's go eat someplace healthy. It'll cost a little bit more now, but we will live to see our kid's wedding, all right? So what Jeff does is he always wants to eat something healthy. He's like, let's go to a cafe. Let's eat a place that they have what he calls real food. And then on the other end of the spectrum, though, there's Tim and I. And Tim and I are like Lady Folly. We're like, we want buffalo wings, and we want it now. Let's get wings. Let's find a place that serves French fried bacon somehow. Let's go to that place. Yes, we won't live as long. We'll only live another six years, but we will die so happy. Tim and I want a cheeseburger with no buns and just donuts instead of the buns. That's what we're pushing for every time, okay? So Jeff is like Lady Wisdom. He says, choose what's best in the long run. Tim and I are like Dame Folly, and we say, choose what's now. Choose what's best in the short run. Carl is like the simple, all right? Because he never cares where we go. Every time we ask him, where do you want to go to lunch? He goes, I don't care. And so we're both calling to the simple. Jeff is saying, Carl, come over here and live. And we're saying, Carl, come over here and wings, all right? That's what we're doing. That's what's going on in this text. Lady Wisdom is on one side, Dame Folly is on the other, and they're both calling for the attention of 
the simple, which is the person that, in a sense, hasn't made up their mind yet. Right? That doesn't mean they're foolish. It means they haven't made up their mind yet. That's what's going on in this text. So with that in mind, let's start with verse 1, verses 1 through 2. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Here's what verses 1 and 2 mean. They mean wisdom is strong and established and prepares a lavish feast for those who will accept it. Wisdom is strong and established and prepares a lavish feast for those who will accept it. Proverbs 14.1, the wisest of women builds her house, which we see here, but folly with her own hands tears it down. So a few things you need to see in verse 1. First of all, notice that she has a large house that she has built, okay? The idea here is that with wisdom, there are benefits. In following wisdom, biblically, in the book of Proverbs, it leads to certain benefits, not always necessarily financially, but emotionally, spiritually, socially, etc., that there is, there is profit, there's uh, great gain in following wisdom. Now, what does it mean in verse 1 when it says, she has hewn her seven pillars, okay? This probably is an indication of how large the house is. So, seven, the number seven in Judaism is an important number. It's seen as this number of wholeness, this number of completeness, The world is created in six days, and then there's a seventh day of rest. In Solomon's temple, there are seven meshwork decorations. In Jewish uh, kind of cosmology, in Jewish thinking, they believed that the world was founded on seven pillars. That doesn't mean the Bible actually teaches that, but that's something that would have been common in Jewish thought. And so the idea here is that the world was created through wisdom. The Bible will teach this, that God created all things through wisdom. And so here you see wisdom with her big house with seven pillars. Now look in verse 2. She has slaughtered her beasts, meaning she's killed the fattened calf. She offers good things at her table. She's not offering you like a bowl of Cheerios and Spam. She's offering steak and mixed wine, it says. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. The idea here is that her feast is lavish. Her feast is lavish, okay? Now, I, I need to make a comment, not trying to push an agenda, but I need to make a comment on, uh, on the mixed wine thing here. If you grew up in a church where you were taught that alcohol is bad and sinful, you're going to misinterpret this text because you're going to think that wisdom is offering you here something that is bad. But in the Bible, alcohol is seen as a blessing. Mixed wine, what they would do is they would take wine and they would mix it either with water so that there would be more of it, or most likely in this case, they would mix it with spices, things like honey, so it would be more intoxicating. But it is seen as a blessing, right? So the Bible says God gave wine to make men's hearts glad. In Song of Solomon, wine is linked to the joy of sexual intimacy. In the Old Testament, having big enough vineyards to make wine is seen as a blessing. Jesus' first miracle is to turn water into wine. At the Last Supper, the New Covenant, Jesus' blood is symbolized with wine. Even in eternity, there is the idea of new wine at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So here's why I'm saying this. Her feast is lavish. She offers you filet mignon and cabernet. She says, if you will but come and dine with me, you will have what's best. You will have sustenance. You will have what sustains you. You will have what brings life and what brings joy. All right? Now, look in verse 3, verses 3 through 6. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. What does that mean, her young women? These are maidservants, all right? The idea is that she's wealthy. Lady Wisdom is wealthy. And so she sends out her maidservants, and they go to the highest places of the town so the most people can hear them. And they say this in verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Here's what verses 3 through 6 means. Wisdom beckons to those who are simple and asks them to leave their previous lifestyle, walk in her ways, and promises life and the fullness thereof 
if they do. Okay? Now, notice this in this text. Wisdom here is for those who want it. All right? We talked about this several times in Proverbs. To be wise and to be foolish are not intellectual qualities in the book of Proverbs. Okay? So you can't think to yourself, oh, I must be a fool because I don't have a high education or I'm simple-minded in that sense. In the, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom and foolishness are moral, not intellectual qualities. So as these women go to the heights of the city and say, turn in to Lady Wisdom's house. She has a b- delicious feast for you. The wise person is the one that accepts the invitation. Okay? Tell you a little story. I had a uh, professor who taught Old Testament, and he was also a pastor. And uh, what they would do at the end of their services is they would do an, an altar call. If you know what an altar call is, it's where they basically ask somebody, if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus, would you come forward so we can pray for you and you can pray to receive Christ? And they had a kid in the congregation uh, who uh, had an intellectual disability. Right? He had an intellectual disability. He was mentally handicapped. Now, they thought that this kid, though, had understood enough to understand the gospel. Okay? That they really did think that this kid was a believer. But every single week, when they would do this altar call, this kid with this intellectual disability would come down front. And so one day after service, the pastor just went to him and said, hey, brother, we know that you're a believer in Christ. You don't have to come forward every time that we do an altar call. And the kid said this. He said, I know I don't have to come forward every time. I just want everybody to know that I love Jesus and I still trust him. You see, this kid wouldn't be considered wise in the world's eyes. He has an intellectual disability. But he has what's being offered here in Proverbs. He has biblical wisdom. He understands the most important thing. So, though he wouldn't be wise in the world's eyes, he would be one who is simple that is accepting the invitation of biblical wisdom and loving and trusting and fearing Christ. And what these women do is they beckon to those to come in and eat with Lady Wisdom. Let me put it this way. On my way to Taco Bell, I pass by a subway. I drive by a subway. And as I drive by a subway, subway says, turn in here, you who are simple. Eat fresh and live. Turn in, you fool. And I say, no, I'm going to Lady Folly's house. I'm going to Taco Bell. And as I keep on driving, I pass a Smoothie King. And Smoothie King says, turn in here, you fool. Eat eat and live. Eat real vegetables and real fruit. And I continue past that. And when I get to Taco Bell, I think that I've made an excellent decision every time that I go there. And why I'm eating it, I think this is amazing. Have you had? They have tacos that don't have taco shells, but instead they're Doritos. That's amazing, all right? So as I'm eating this, I think, what a good decision. I'm so glad I didn't go to Subway with their bread that's too hard. It always smells like dank water in there. So glad I didn't go to Smoothie King. So glad I'm eating here at Taco Bell. But then when I'm done eating, I hate myself for the next four days, right? I've said this before. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 500 times, your name is Taco Bell. Why do I keep going back? Well, because as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That's the idea here is that as these people are going on along their way, the women are beckoning. No, no, turn in here. Real food in here. Life-giving sustenance in here. That's what's going on in this text. Now, look at the end of verse 6. I find this fascinating. Notice that they don't just call for you to turn into Lady Wisdom's house. They also call you to turn away from something. Verse 6, leave your simple ways. Notice that there's a command here of repentance, that if you want to have biblical wisdom, you can't just add knowledge on a faulty foundation but rather you have to turn away from. You have to turn away from false thinking. You have to turn away from lies. You have to repent that with this idea of faith and following wisdom, there's also this corollary of repentance that you have to turn away from those simple ways and look at the results if you dine with Lady Wisdom in verse 6. Leave your simple ways and what? Live. She offers life. 
she offers life, all right? This feast, like these women, don't, they don't really exist. These women don't really exist. They're symbols. This feast doesn't really exist. It's symbolic, but it's a powerful symbol. It's similar to the idea in the New Testament of man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the idea in this, uh, in this text, that by eating this food, dining with Lady Wisdom, that we gain biblical wisdom and biblical insight. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. This text, after describing Lady Wisdom, is going to have a little hiatus where it's going to talk about the wise person and the fool, and then it's going to describe Lady Folly. But here's what verses 7 through 9 mean. Don't rebuke a fool because they will hate you for correcting them but rebuke a wise person because they will appreciate your advice and will continue growing in wisdom. Let me say this very strongly. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not cast your pearls before swine. The fool in the book of Proverbs is the person that in a sense is beyond hope. All right? It's a sense in which they're beyond hope. In fact, Proverbs 27, 22 says this, Crush a fool and a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. So what this text is saying is if somebody is a fool, do not waste your time on them. Now, let me, let me clarify. You won't know if they're a fool or not until after you've had a chance to talk to them. The fool in the book of Proverbs is the person that is unwilling to change their mind even when they've been shown biblical wisdom. That's who a fool is, okay? So there are some people that you might think are foolish, But when you meet with them, you're able to tell, no, I think they're open to changing their mind. I think they really want to know. But there are other people that you will meet that as soon as you sit down with them, you know, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what biblical evidence you present, doesn't matter what the church has thought about this, doesn't matter because they have already got their mind set up. And this text says, don't waste your time on them because all they will do is hate you. All they will do is hate you. That should free you up a little bit, that you don't have to correct everybody's misunderstandings. You should correct people that are open to reason, but there are some people that are beyond reason, according to the book of Proverbs, and the Bible's going to say you don't have to waste time on them. Rather, give your time to people who want it. Give your time to people who want it. If you rebuke a fool, they hate you because you corrected them and they feel bad about themselves. But if you rebuke a wise person, they learn from it. They grow. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, there was a uh, pastor who wanted to disciple these guys. So about 10 guys came to him and said, we would love for you to disciple us. We'll we'll do whatever you say. We want to read books. We want to learn theology. We want to know the Bible. Will you please disciple us? And that pastor said, okay, you want me to disciple you? Meet at my house. It's Saturday morning at 4 a.m. That's when I have time to disciple you. So the first Saturday rolls around, and of those 10 people, about eight of them show up. The other two decided that's not worth it. The next Saturday, they meet again, 4 a.m., Saturday morning, and there's about six people that show up. The next Saturday, they meet at 4 a.m., and there's about five people left. And then he says to those guys, we're not going to meet at 4 a.m. on Saturday. We can meet whenever you want. I just wanted to see who was serious about being discipled. That's the idea. The idea is that if you you give your time to people that want it, if you rebuke a wise person, it makes them wiser still. But don't waste your time on people whose minds are made up and can't be changed. There are a lot of people whose minds can be changed. You won't know until you talk to them. I sit down with people all the time in my role here as a pastor, uh, and maybe they don't go to this church, or maybe they're part of another church, or whatever it is, and there are a few meetings where I've sat down in where the person basically has their mind made up, and I've had to ask, is there anything 
that I could possibly say or possibly show you today that would change your mind? And if they say no, well, then we can just go ahead and dismiss the meeting and get coffee or something because the mind's already made up, all right? Because the mind's already made up. Now, look at verse 8 again. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he, a wise man and he will love you. Here's what this text just said. You can tell whether or not somebody is wise or foolish by how they respond to rebuke, by how they respond to rebuke. So here's my question for you. How do you respond when somebody corrects you? How do you respond when somebody rebukes you? When somebody corrects you, do you get mad at them and demonize them and you don't like them anymore or you start picking out their faults or you ignore it? Because if so, the Bible's going to say that's walking in foolishness. Or when somebody corrects you, do you listen to what they have to say? Now, here's the thing. That doesn't mean that everything they say about you is true. There are times where if somebody wants to correct me, that they've, they'll, they'll tell me something and 100% of what they say is false, but I don't know if it's false until I've taken time to discern and think through it. There are other times I've been corrected that 100% of what they said is correct, and I need to change and I need to repent. Most of the time when I've been corrected, part of what they say is not wrong, but part of what they say is right. And my job, biblically, is to get rid of the part that's wrong. I don't have to receive that from them if that's wrong. But I have to listen to that little 1% sometimes of correction that they have. They might say, 90, they might say Zach, I have this correction against you. 99% of what they're saying might not be correct. But I have to listen to that 1% that is correct so that I'm not seen here as the fool. All right? So let me tell you something Katie and I do on dates. Sometimes we just go on dates and have normal dates that aren't weird, and it's fun, and we laugh. But here's one of the things we've started doing on dates. We will ask each other super deep spiritual questions over dinner, okay? So we'll be sitting down having spaghetti. I'm trying to, like, roll a meatball with my nose, like Lady in the Tramp style, and she's wanting me to stop, and then she wants to talk about something deep. And here's what we do. Ready? We ask this question. In what ways am I failing you in our marriage? That's a romantic dinner. Uh, Sounds like a lot of fun, but we'll ask that question. Katie, in what ways am I failing you in our marriage? What ways am I failing you emotionally? What ways am I failing you physically? What ways am I failing you spiritually? What ways am I failing you financially? And I'm basically opening myself up so that she can speak rebuke and truth into my life. And it's tough. Now, Katie is very gracious. She'll often do what I call a compliment sandwich, which is where she'll say something nice, then tell me how I'm awful, and then say something nice again, right? That way you don't really, the awfulness doesn't hit you so hard. So she's like, I think you're doing a really great job here. You're terrible at this, but you're also really great here. And so I take that compliment sandwich, and I bite into it, and I think, there's a critique in here. There's a critique in here. And then she asks the same things. In what ways am I failing in our marriage? What ways am I failing as a wife? What ways am I failing as a mother? And we speak these truths into each other's lives. And listen, they're not easy sometimes. But that's not the only place that we do this. Guys on staff, we do this. We'll say, what, what do you see in me that needs to change? How can I be a better preacher? How can I be a better pastor? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better father? And we open ourselves up to rebuke. But we don't just do that on staff. We do it in our community group. We split guys and girls and we ask difficult questions. Hey, what are you tempted towards that you've never told anybody about? And we ask these kind of questions. So here's my question for you. Who is doing that in your life? Do you get away from people that would rebuke you? Do you get away from people that would correct you? Do you spurn rebuke? Or are you the wise person that dines with Lady Wisdom who accepts and listens to and heeds rebuke. I'll say this. A lot of people don't like sharing the places that they struggle because they think that they have to be their own hero. That is not the gospel. The more you trust Christ, the more you believe that Christ is the hero to your story, the more free you are to be open and authentic and honest about where you struggle and where you're tempted and where you're hurting. All right? So you can actually tell a lot about what you believe about Jesus 
by how willing you are to be critiqued by other people and to show your brokenness, to show your messiness, and to show your sin, and to show your sin. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and, your year, and years will be added to your life. Verse 12, If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Here's what verses 10 through 12 mean. Fearing God is wisdom, and wisdom will give you a long life. You will reap what you sow. If you seek wisdom, then you will benefit. But if you're unwise, you will end up being a rod for your own back. Okay, let me, let me, let me summarize the entire book of Proverbs just from this text. You ready? Here's the one thing you need to know about this text. This is the most important thing about this text this morning. It's the most important thing about the book of Proverbs. If you have gotten nothing else out of Proverbs, take this one point. You ready? Wisdom is fearing Yahweh. Wisdom is fearing God. That's where wisdom begins. Wisdom is, biblical wisdom begins with fearing God. It's not like worldly wisdom. It's not obtained through more philosophy or through more education or by being socially conscious or woke or anything like that. Biblical wisdom is fearing God. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Wisdom cannot happen apart from that. You're just a person that knows a bunch of facts. Fearing Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. By fear there, I don't mean what you think of when you think of the movie It. By fear there, I mean respect, submission, humility, knowing that when you stand before God, you stand before a king who is almighty. That's what the Bible means by fearing. This text will say that wisdom begins, and the book of Proverbs will say this over and over again, wisdom begins with fearing God, fearing God. Okay, let me, let me give it, let's do a little theology together. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Everybody know the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve? There are a bunch of trees in the Garden of Eden, but there are two specific trees that are named. The first is called the tree of life, and the other one is called the tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. Why is it called that? If I was writing the story, I'd call one like the tree of life and one the tree of death. Or I'd call one the tree of life and one the tree of sin. Why is that other tree called the knowledge of good and evil? Here's why. This is important. Ready? The problem with Adam and Eve is not that they're wanting to seek wisdom, because if they were seeking wisdom, they would have obeyed God, because fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. What they're doing by partaking of that tree is not trying to just obtain wisdom. They're trying to be the determiner of wisdom. They're trying to be God. That's the chief sin of man. We don't want to be humans. We want to be God. So instead of fearing God, when he says not to eat of the tree, they obey him. Instead, what they're doing is they're saying, I want to determine what wisdom is. I want to determine what is right and wrong. I want to determine truth. And all human sin following that point does the same thing. Every time we sin, what we're doing for that moment is we're saying, I know more than God, and I get to be the determiner of what's right and wrong in this situation. That is the essence of human sin. So what they're doing, so notice, notice the contrast here. True wisdom is fearing Yahweh and obeying Him. What they're doing is they're wanting to be their own gods. That's what the devil tells them. When you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The whole idea there is that they want to be the determiner of wisdom. They want to be the determiner of what's right and wrong. And this text is going to say that's not how you obtain wisdom. You obtain wisdom by fearing the one who has wisdom, who is God himself. Now look at verse 12. What does verse 12 mean? If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Here's what that means. You will reap what you sow. That's the idea, that you will reap what you sow. If you seek wisdom, it will benefit you. But if you don't seek biblical wisdom, you have no one to blame but yourself. You have no one to blame but 
yourself. Now, let's get into verses 13 through 17. So we've seen Lady Wisdom. She's great. She has this lavish feast. We've seen uh, the wise person and the foolish person. The wise person accepts rebuke and fears God. The foolish person rejects those things. Now we're going to look at Lady Folly, and she is a spicy, dangerous woman. Verses 13 through 17. Let's look at Lady Folly. The woman Folly is loud, okay? What does that mean? That doesn't mean she has powerful vocal cords, okay? In Hebrew, the Hebrew word here is hama. It means that she's boisterous. She's riotous. She's, self, she's like Roseanne or something. She's loud in a bad way, okay? She's self-exalting. It's the opposite of what women are told in 1 Peter 3, 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. She's self-exalting. She's loud. But not only is she loud, look what else she is. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing, all right? That is a dangerous combination. That is a dangerous combination. She's boisterous, she's seductive, and she knows nothing. Now, that doesn't mean she doesn't have any knowledge. She knows how to seduce. It means that she doesn't have moral knowledge. She doesn't have wisdom. She's the evil twin sister of Lady Wisdom, if you want to say it that way. Now, look in verse 14. She sits at the door of her house. She doesn't have this huge house that she's constructed like Lady Wisdom. Instead, she sits at the door of her house, which may be a reference to prostitution. In the ancient Near East, a woman who was a prostitute or an adulteress would often sit by, out, stand outside her house, and that way as unsuspecting simple people walked by, they'd say, hey, why don't you come on in? And they would uh, seduce them. That's verse 14. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Verse 16, whoever is simple, notice she says the same thing that uh, ladies, uh, Lady uh, Wisdom's women said, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, look at verse 17, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, okay? So what you see here in Proverbs 9 is you see two metaphorical women. You see Lady Wisdom and you see Dame Folly. And so what I've done is I've created this little chart to compare and contrast them that we're going to show you. We're going to put it up on the screen. That way you can see the similarities and differences between these ladies. I've put the similarities in italics. Lady Wisdom, she built a solid house. She leads to a prosperous future, whereas Dame Folly sits at the door of her house, possibly like a prostitute. Lady Wisdom is wealthy. She sends out women to shout, whereas Dame Folly has to shout herself. Now look at this next one because they both do this. They both call out to the simple. Both Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly are always calling out to the simple, calling out to those going along their way, okay? Now, it's interesting, though, the kind of simple that they call out to is slightly different. Lady Wisdom calls out to him who lacks sense, and Dame Folly calls out to those who are on straight paths. By the way, if you're a Christian, if you're someone on a, quote, straight path, the one who will constantly be calling out for you is Lady Folly, Lady Folly. Lady Wisdom has lavish food, whereas Dame Folly has worse and stolen food. Here's another similarity, though. They both promise good things. Lady Wisdom says, if you turn in here, you'll have something good. Lady Folly says, if you turn in here, you'll have something good. And then this is the biggest difference between them. Lady Wisdom leads to life, whereas Dame Folly leads to death. Leads to death, all right? So I want to say a few things about this text before going on. Sin will beckon to you, okay? Sin will beckon to you. It is like a Venus flytrap, which is terrifying to me, by the way. Plants should not be eating animals. But a Venus flytrap will let out that sweet scent, that sugary water scent, and then as a fly lands in there or a frog or something else, it consumes it. It consumes it. That's what temptation does. That's what Dame Folly does. Now, I want you to see this. I think this is interesting. Of these two women 
who offers the better food? Which one, wisdom or folly? Wisdom. Wisdom offers steak and wine. Wisdom offers meat and mixed wine. Whereas Lady Folly, all she has to offer is bread and water, is bread and water. So who's offering what's actually better? Lady Wisdom. So what does Lady Folly have to do to make her meal more enticing? It's that it's stolen water. It's that it's bread eaten in secret. She can't offer the same thing that Lady Wisdom does, so what she does is she spices it up by having it be what's forbidden. By having it be what's forbidden. I'll tell you a little story. I talked to a bunch of young men who struggle with some type of sexual sin. Maybe they're sleeping with their girlfriend, they're looking at pornography, whatever, and they say to me, Zach, I won't struggle with this anymore as soon as I get married. And I think to myself, you idiot. You think that you won't struggle with a particular sin because you'll get married. I say, here's the issue. This is what you need to realize. You're not craving sex. You're craving sin. And only the gospel is the solution to sin. Yes, being married helps, but the bigger issue in your heart is that you want what's forbidden. You want the stolen water. Water, by the way, in the book of Proverbs is often used as a sexual euphemism. What you're wanting is what's sinful. And what I have to say is the solution that you're looking for is actually going to be a different lady than your wife. It's going to be lady wisdom. It's going to be biblical wisdom. It's going to be the gospel. The way you fight sin is through the gospel. Whatever you think your biggest sin struggle is, that's not what it is. If you think your biggest sin struggle is lust or alcoholism or drug use or anger or anxiety or whatever your sin is, that's not the biggest issue. You want to know what the biggest issue is? The biggest issue is because of sin, we are born God-hating and we crave what He opposes. Only in the gospel can we be transformed. Only in the gospel can we have those chains broken. Only in the gospel can we see that Christ is better than those things. So notice that though Lady Wisdom offers what's better, Lady Folly offers what's worse, but she makes it look good by this promise of it being tempting, by it being forbidden, by it being forbidden, all right? Tell you a little story. So this text reminds me of every time that I go to the fair, okay? I like going to the fair for two reasons. I I don't like going for the rides, right? Everybody dies like uh, every year on some sort of fair ride. That's not the way I'm going to go down. I'm not going to die on a fair ride. I'm going to die in a much more extravagant way than that. But I go to the fair. I don't like the rides. I love the food. Why? Because it's the kind of food that Tim and I love. It's the kind of food that's covered in fried. I don't know what fried is, but if I could just eat fried, I would. All right? So we go to the fair, eat my French fried bacon, and then every year I try to win Katie a huge stuffed teddy bear. You know what I'm talking about? I'll spend $100 to win a teddy bear that costs $10. But they're these huge teddy bears because I want to try to watch her drag that around the fairground even though it's bigger than her. So every year we go, when we go to the fair, I always want to win her this huge teddy bear. And though I'm going straight on my path, these carnies beckon to me. And they say, turn in here. Look how easy it is to win this game. And I'm like, no, Carney, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to get some French fried bacon. I'll see you later. And they say, aren't you going to win something for your girl? And as soon as they say that, they've got me. I'm like, I don't have to answer to you, Carney. I don't have to show you I'm a man. Hand me a ball, right? And then I'll do that. So what I do is they they beckon me. They say, turn in here and play this game, and you'll win this huge teddy bear. And so every year, I take the ball, and I try to knock down those cups, right? Or I take, uh, you know, the hammer, and you try to hit that little light, and it goes up and hits the bell. Or you take darts, and you try to pop the balloons. You guys know what I'm talking about? So every year, I try to win Katie this huge teddy bear because that's what I've been beckoned to. That's what I've been promised. Look how easy it is, they will say. So what I did is I brought for you the stuffed animal that I most recently won for Katie. Would you like to see it? Here it is. 
This is it. They promised me a huge teddy bear, but what did Dame Folly deliver? A two-foot-long stuffed fish, all right? Okay, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this now. Uh, let's just put it, put it right there. There you go. What's the point of that? The point of that is what they do is they say, look how easy this is and look what's promised. But you see, the game is rigged. The game is rigged. It's not something that you can typically do if you don't practice it all the time. That's kind of what's going on with Lady Folly. She says, come in here. There's no harm here. Nothing bad's going to happen. I promise you a huge teddy bear. And you get that gross, weird, orange stuffed fish I just pulled out of my pocket. All right? Verse 18. Let's look at the last verse. But he does not know that the dead are there. Literally in Hebrew, it's the Raphaim. It means the shades. It means the souls of her victims. It's saying that her house is haunted in that sense. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sheol is where you go in Jewish theology when you die while you're waiting for resurrection. It means the grave. Notice that Dame Folly leads to death always. She leads to death always. She promises something that's good, but she lies about it, and you get death instead. You get death. Sin always hides its price tag. Sin always hides its price tag. I'll tell you another story. I had, uh, where I went to high school, I was about to go to English class one day, and there were a couple guys hanging out in the hall that were kind of shady guys, and they had a tube of chapstick. And what they were doing is for everybody walking by, they say, hey, you want some chapstick? It's cold outside. Your lips look chapped. Why don't you have some chapstick? Now, I know enough not to take chapstick from a stranger. So I walk past them. But my buddy said, yeah, I'll try some of that chapstick. And so he puts it on, okay? Little did he know that they had put Novocaine in the chapstick, okay? Novocaine is a numbing agent. So we go to English class, and we're doing our work, and I look over to my buddy, and he's doing this with his mouth, trying to figure out why his face is numb, right? A few minutes go by, I look back over, and he's watching the teacher, and he's drooling. Drool is dripping down his chin because he can't feel his mouth, okay? And then, true story, the teacher called on him to read. She's like, I want you to read for us. And he goes, she goes, stop talking like that. Stop trying to be a class clown. Read. And he's like, once upon a time, and he's trying to power through it. That's what Dame Folly does. You think she's offering something good, but it's laced with something. It's laced with poison. It's laced with Novocaine. It's laced with something that will not benefit you. That's the idea. I'll give you three quotes here. The Net Bible says this, Wisdom offers life with no mention of pleasure. Folly offers pleasure with no mention of death. Another Old Testament scholar, a guy named Michael Fox, not to be confused with Michael J. Fox, who is not an Old Testament scholar, says, Folly dupes her victims by showing them what they want to see. And I'll give you one more by Tim Keller. This quote is awesome. Memorize this quote. The further you go down the road toward folly, the more you interpret all events as supporting what you always believed anyway. I'm going to read that again. The further you go down the road toward folly, the more you interpret all events as supporting what you always believed anyway. Lady Folly lets you see what you want to see. She doesn't let you see the dagger behind her back. She doesn't let you see the dagger behind her back. Jeff told a story one time, which I want to repeat because I think it's really helpful for this text. Uh, There was this lady in Japan, true story, who's a serial killer. Most serial killers are men because men are more aggressive, but there are female serial killers, and there was this lady in Japan who was a serial killer. I'm not going to try to pronounce her name because I don't want to mispronounce it, but they gave her the nickname the Black Widow, the Black Widow, because what she would do is she would take a lover, and then she would have her lover drink cyanide. She would say that she was making this vitamin drink, making this smoothie, and she'd offer one to uh, her potential victim, and they would, par- they would partake of it, 
and multiple guys were killed by drinking this poison, this cyanide drink that she would made. That's like Dame Folly. Dame Folly is the black widow. She offers you a smoothie. She offers you delight, and it's laced with cyanide. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how this plays into the gospel, and then we're going to summarize our Proverbs series. In the book of Proverbs here, in Proverbs 9, how many women have we been looking at? Two. We've been looking at two symbolic women. There's another book of the Bible, though, where you have two symbolic women portrayed in opposition to each other, and it's the book of Revelation. I want to read this to you. I want to read this to you. Keep this text in mind. We're going to throw it up on the screen. Revelation 17, 1 through 6. This is the corollary of Lady Folly. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay? Now I want you to see a second woman in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his uh, people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away." Which one of these women you follow in Proverbs 9 determines which one of these women you will be in Revelation, in Revelation. You see, in the book of Revelation, the dragon is symbolic of the devil. We know that because the text says that. The beast is symbolic of worldly political powers. We know that because in the book of Daniel, beasts are portrayed as worldly political powers. So this, this, this Babylon figure, this great harlot, is symbolic of the sexual immorality and the decadence of Rome originally, but today of anybody that doesn't know Christ. And it's contrasted with the bride of Christ. It's contrasted with the bride of Christ. To follow Lady Folly leads to being like, being a part of, this great prostitute, whereas following Lady Wisdom leads to being the bride of Christ. Have you ever seen where two people are debating on whose dog a dog belongs to? And so what they'll do is they'll get on other ends of the room and they'll call that dog and the dog goes to the one that's its master. You know what I'm talking about? The dog goes to the one that it's, whose master it is, okay? In the same way, all of the Christian life, you're going to have Lady Wisdom calling for your attention and Lady Falling calling to your attention the one that you go to the most often is your master. The one that you go to the most often is your master. Not that you never fail. Every time we sin, there's a sense in which we're following Dame Folly. But which one is your master? Which one do you love the most? You see, the one you spend the more time with is the one that you learn to love, is the one that you learn to love. Now, because this is our last uh, sermon out of Proverbs, not ever, but for this series, I want to go over just a recap of the book of Proverbs before we take communion. Okay? I want to just go over some things that we've learned as we've been studying the book of Proverbs. So I'm just going to read these off. This is just a fresh reminder. In case you missed all of the other series, you just get it all right now. All right? So let me go over a few things we learned here from Proverbs. We learned that work is a form of worship when we looked at the ant, thou sluggard. 
that uh, God is not just pleased with you when you go to church and read your Bible and do spiritual things, but all of life is spiritual. That there's a way where your work can be worshipped, and you can swing a hammer for God's glory, and you can send emails for God's glory. We learn that true wisdom is fearing God by obeying His Word. What is wisdom? It's obeying God. It's fearing God, obeying His Word. We learn that wisdom is not innate, but it's revealed in the Bible. You are born knowing how to do very few things. Use the restroom, eat, sleep, cry. That's about it. You're not born with biblical wisdom. It has to be sought out in the Scriptures. We learn that foolishness is a moral, not an intellectual issue. We learn this. Take note of this one with this text. Sin promises short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term pain. Sin promises short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term pain. We learned avoiding temptation begins way before you're actually tempted. This one's huge, okay? Way before somebody has an affair with their secretary, there are years before that of wrong thinking, not being in community, not loving Christ, uh, flirting with his secretary, whatever. Avoiding bad acts, avoiding temptations that are really strong begin way before you're actually tempted with that thing. We learn that wise people accept rebuke, whereas evil people hate it. Be open to correction. Be open to correction. We learned in Proverbs, you must have biblical community to know true wisdom. Proverbs will say things like, there's wisdom with many counselors. Don't make any big decision in your life by yourself. Bring in other godly people and see what they have to say. Okay? We learned, don't trust yourself, trust God. We live in a culture that says, listen to your heart, trust your gut. The Bible says, do not do that. If you do that, you will die. You can trust anybody but yourself. Trust God, trust the church, trust the Bible, just don't trust you. Your heart is wicked just like mine is, and it will lie to us all the time. We learned in Proverbs that discipline is loving from parents, the church, or from God. We learned that condemning the righteous and justifying the wicked are equally bad. God is not on the side of the potential victim, nor on the side of the potential victimizer. He's on the side of truth. He's on the side of truth. What you say is an overflow of what's in your heart. We talked about that. We saw that God hates wickedness because He's holy, but He provides salvation because He's loving. And then lastly, we learned that both biblical wisdom and sinful folly will call for your attention. Biblical wisdom provides what is better. So to end this series in Proverbs, I want to show you two texts in the New Testament where Jesus specifically is seen as the wisdom of God, all right? Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Talking about himself. Wisdom literature in Jewish thinking is always applied to Solomon. He's seen as the prototypical wise king, and Jesus says, someone wiser than Solomon is here. And then look at 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, there's a sense in which lady wisdom isn't a lady at all. That wisdom is seen as personified and typified in Jesus. Because here's the problem biblically. We are born broken and evil and sinful. So if lady wisdom calls to us and lady folly calls to us, we always default to lady folly. We always default there. In our lost state, when we're born, we're not born neutral. We're born broken, we're born sinful. So when lady folly calls, we come running. So our only hope is that wisdom would do more than call, but that wisdom would come and actually rescue us, that wisdom would actually come and redeem us, that wisdom would come and show us the errors of our way and the errors of our thinking and redeem us, and that's what we have in Christ. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, who has come to pull you away from Dame Folly, to pull you out of her haunted house, to pull you out of her clutches and redeem you? Because biblical wisdom starts with fearing Him. If you don't know Him, you can. What do I have to do? 
Do I have to live a better life? Do I have to clean myself up? What about all the bad things I've done? Here's what you do. You repent of your sin and you ask Jesus to transform you. You ask Jesus to save you. You bow the knee to King Jesus and he will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will transform you from the inside out. And all of a sudden, because that's happened, for the rest of your life, the voice of Lady Wisdom sounds a little bit sweeter than the voice of Lady Folly. Than the voice of Lady Folly. Let's pray as the men come forward to get ready for communion. Father, I thank you for today and uh, just ask that uh, you'd be with us. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this uh, series in Proverbs. We pray that you would help us remember uh, these things, that we would love the Scriptures, that we would love the Gospel, that we would love the fact that we're saved by grace, that we can't do anything to earn it. We thank you for these good things, and we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we don't have to guess, or we don't have to look into our hearts, or we don't have to go with whatever the cultural fad is to try to find what truth is, but you've given us truth, specifically in black and white where we can open a book and see what you have said. So we thank you for this. We ask that you would bless us now as we transition into communion. In Christ's name, amen.